0: Welcome to Florida Basketball Hour. I'm Neil Blackman. Saturday down south on this show we will discuss Florida's uh, home loss to Kentucky. A pretty embarrassing defeat for the Gators uh, who just really weren't very competitive after the game's first 10 minutes. Um, Really tough loss. Chance to bounce back against Ole Miss. We'll preview the Ole Miss game and then we'll have A pretty lengthy discussion around minute 40 of the podcast uh, about the current state of the program and kind of what we think about, uh, you know, where things are right now, Um, even given the the obviously uh, terrible and unfortunate situation with Keontae Johnson. uh, You know, everything has to be evaluated and and we hope that we present a fair uh, accounting of of that. So thanks, everybody, for listening. Remember to give us ratings on uh, iTunes, Apple. Um, you know, hit us up with a heart on Spotify, all these things mattered, um, so that we can really, uh, you know, improve the show, uh, from a guest standpoint, a sponsorship standpoint and, and for you guys, thanks again for, for all your support over the three seasons that we've done it and, and we appreciate you. Enjoy. Welcome to Florida Basketball Hour. I am Neil Blackman, Saturday down south. I'm with Eric Fawcett, GatorCountry.com. Eric, quad three home loss last night to Kentucky, uh, a team that had a six-game losing streak for the first time in 94 years at that program. And um, really kind of – like Florida got up 10-5, and then the net broke. And from there, it was just like a Kentucky swarm – Yeah.
1: I mean, Neil, uh, you were at the game. Um, I was not. I feel like that's probably the best way for us ever to analysis is these opportunities where I'm watching the broadcast and and you're in the building. And, you know, before the podcast, I was thinking uh, or before this game, I should say I was going to say, hey, I'm going to be able to ask Neil, what was the vibe like going to a game? What was the atmosphere like? Um, I'll ask you that just briefly, though. I know this was a pretty anomalous type of game. Uh, I also the way we can kind of tie this in is something that sometimes you can sense when you're there at a game versus watching on the broadcast is um, you can really kind of feel where the feel where the game starts to slip away, feel the moment that um, that concern and uh, really sets in. So I'll ask you that, Neil, like briefly, what was kind of the atmosphere like of being at a game? And also, uh, when did you kind of feel like like the Gators were in trouble? Because sometimes, yeah, you just sense that so much more when you're in the room.
0: So I thought there were, so let's do the, let's do them in order. Vibe at the game. uh, Very good. Um, In, in the lineups portion, uh, you know, kind of surreal because of like all the cardboard cutouts and just the lack of, of people, but full Uh, you couldn't like move around and switch seats based on what was available. Like all the, all the seats that they sold uh, were sold. Um, there were no ticket windows open. It was a sellout, uh, and people showed up, uh, with that said, um, you know, and, and then Florida started fast and that was good. Uh, after the net broke, the vibe was increasingly dismayed and, as always is the case when you play Kentucky, there were a, a smattering of Kentucky fans. They became very loud with the go big blue chants uh, that you could hear from the rafters. Um, and so that that's kind of the answer to that question. It was, it was interesting. It was an interesting experience being there in person. My first uh, game as a fan during a pandemic, pretty interesting. And second question, I, I really felt like it two spots, um, I think the first one is Florida fights to get a 2019 lead. And I thought that uh, Kentucky um, went on a little 5-0 run where they really stifled Florida defensively. And I started thinking, you know, man, Florida's really struggling to score. You know, one of their baskets in that stretch was a contested Tyree Appleby step-back rainbow three that I thought, Wow, that's not the best shot, but it went in. Uh, and then the other one was a Darushi triple, um, which was the last one he made, even though he kept firing them away uh, with 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 aplomb in the second half. Um, that was one spot. The second spot was I thought Florida ran a nice set to start the second half, and Tyree Appleby misses a bunny. Kentucky comes down and like it's just so easy for them to score. Florida answers with a bucket on another good possession. And then I think Kentucky went fast in transition and they had the ball in the basket in like seconds and we're back up eight. And I thought, uh, if Florida's going to defend like this, you know, this game's over. And before really almost before I finished processing that it was basically the worst four minutes of basketball that, that I have seen in the Mike White era. Um, and I think I think by the media timeout, Florida was down 15 points in a game that was a six game six point game at halftime.
1: Well, and there have been points this season and points last season where Florida's offense has been so good that you've almost thought, hey, like down 15 with some time left. I mean, it's not uh, you know not unreasonable to think the Gators could come back. They've got some shot makers like Tyree Appleby and Trey Mann and, and Noah Locke. Maybe they hit a couple threes and then make things go. But man, I, I've got to say. At this kind of given circumstance, like you said, given the way that they were defending and given the way that their offense wasn't really flowing, it, it did feel uh, pretty helpless. And I think you probably hit the nail on the head there when you, when you said this was as that was as rough of a stretch as as, um, as you've seen. And and I mean, one one thing I will say is there's a, lo- a lot of people that said, oh, you know, when the when the net broke and there was that huge um, huge break, <laughs> that's when things really you know kind of turned for Florida and, and ruined their momentum. To which I would say maybe, but Florida comes out of that break with a lineup of Trey Mann, um, Noah Locke, uh, Osayo Sifu, Scotty Lewis, and Omar Payne, um, a lineup that entered the game with a minus 54 net rating. Um, which is just like, that's just a ridiculous number. They They'd only played like four or five minutes together. Um, but that went very, but those minutes went very, very poorly. So when things were going well, and then there was a break, it certainly wasn't a fatigue thing. Um, I, I don't know why Florida went to a lineup with Osai Osifo and Omar Payne in the front court and Noah Lock coming in that early. Um, I, I just thought that was such a bizarre decision and predictably. Um, so I, I, I tweeted out right before the podcast, um, Pivot Pivot analysis, which is uh, an analytics tool I use. Um, They just keep adding really, really good stuff. And one of the things that they've added um, is something called shift analysis. And it's essentially, imagine a linear line that for the entire 40 minutes of the game, you can go, uh, you, you can look at every lineup combination. The Gators use it at any point and say, how did that lineup combination do before that lineup combination um, switched? Um, so anyways, um, that lineup comes in. Now, Noah Locke, Trey Mann, Scottie Lewis, uh, Omar Payne, Osayo Sifo, a lineup that had played briefly in past games and went very, very, very poorly. Um, they came in, uh, it went, it went very poorly. Um, they were minus five in, in less than two minutes. Um, then they go to uh, Niles Lane, Trey Mann, Noah Locke, Ca- Colin Castle, and Anthony DeRuji. Um, they don't score. And then they go back to uh, Trey Mann, Tyree Appleby, Noah Locke, Anthony DeRuji, Colin Castleton. And predictably, that lineup does well because it's done well in the past. Um, so they go up three in the next two minutes and um, then Florida starts to bring it back. So so again, sometimes I just look at these these lineup decisions that Florida does and it's just like, you know, they put in a lineup that has performed very poorly against, and then they put them in against Kentucky starters. I mean, how did how did you think that was going to go? Um, it went bad. They go to another lineup that's kind of mismatched. Um, some some younger players, uh, not as many ball movers. Um, it doesn't go particularly well. I mean, not not shocking. Um, and then you go back to a lineup that has done really well, and it goes it goes well. Like, I mean, I don't want to look at it through a lens of, of of maybe that simply, but but again, like. I, I don't know what I'm missing here, Neil, but but I just I, I no one can be shocked that you throw it Osai Osefo and 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 Noah Locke and Omar Payne against Kentucky starters and 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 it goes poorly. Like I I don't know how you can be shocked by that.
0: So I'll tell you something that's that's interesting at the at the game that echoes those sentiments. There is a gentleman. Okay, so the way it works, most almost all the season ticket holders have had to move um, because of the social distancing guidelines. So none of us have. I sh- shouldn't say none. The bulk of us do not have our normal seats. Um, like I went from the middle section of the almost mid-court, uh, low in in the you know first level to to like behind a basket, uh, but like not where I'm obstructed by the glass. Um, and you know I don't mind it over there. It's fine. But as it turned out, a guy that I usually sit near that uh, played college basketball, but grew up a Gator fan and ended up playing at at Boston University. Um, And he sits about four seats down from me normally and is a guy I talk to sometimes before games. He's a listener to the pod, so shout out uh, to you, Chris. But um, Chris came over after the OSIFO lineup and said, I think I'm going to get out of here pretty soon. He said, I just have no idea why that kid is on the floor. Um, And, like, it's harsh, uh, okay, but, you know, it really didn't make a ton of sense. And you saw just the fact that he's just not, not ready offensively, even remotely, to contribute. I mean, Kentucky saw what he did on one shot and then backed off of him. He had another drive where he you know I guess in junior college maybe he could attack the closeout the way he did and that was fine but after attacking the closeout like Kentucky converged quickly and I think he was stunned by like the fact that you know a high level power five team would attack (laughs) would be able to converge on attacking a closeout quickly and you know what I'm talking about Eric and he got stuck in the Mm. air and then I don't know if he tried to duck down a pass but whatever he did it was way too late and it led to a transition basket like almost immediately uh the other direction and i thought that was a worse moment really than the pump fake think about the two-point mid-range jump shot and then take a terrible two-point mid-range jump shot um you know that to me like every player that's a freshman in college does that but the fact that like you could just see that game speed wise, even what he was really strong at doing in junior college with the ball, he wasn't ready to do um, against Kentucky. And I just don't understand why he's on the floor when you know that you're having defensive issues, Eric, you cannot play four on five offensively.
1: Uh, yeah, this, yeah, no, this brings up something that I'm going to share probably later in the podcast, but um, uh, just for a, for a Steve So he's at a minus 11 net ranking or native net rating on the floor. Um, in his time this season, um, uh, he, his individual defensive numbers are, are okay. They're not, they're not awful. His offensive numbers are very poor. Um, I don't think he's unplayable per se. Like, I don't think he's someone who you need to staple to the bench though. I'm not, you know, a huge fan, which is, um, you know, I, I really, I'm not trying to say like, I, I told you so, but I mean, I've spent many times on the podcast um, and writing, just saying like, and I watched every minute he played in junior college and I said, wow, I, I don't think, I don't think he's ready for this, you guys. And so far I would say that that seems to be the case though. I mean, Hey, plenty of time for him to, uh, uh, to continue to acclimatize to the college game. But um, uh, again, I just, I just have to wonder like, what, why did you have to pull him pull him into the game when you did? And also, Omar Payne got a lot more run than I thought he maybe should have in this game. Um, and once again, he came in early too. So I'm I'm not just trying to bag on Osayo Sifo here. Um, it, just uh, just some of those decisions lineup wise um, just really shocked me, and I thought kind of put the Gators behind the eight ball. Um, and uh, and that's one of the things that that hurt and I, and I feel like is a little bit of the the theme of the last couple of games is that I just don't feel like the gators are are getting most out of their guys. and and one of those things is is lineups, and one of those things is also uh, play calling, I guess, um uh, let's say offensively and, and what they're running. So uh, I, I don't know if we want to get into that, Neil, but uh, what did you how would you feel about the way uh, Florida ran offense yesterday?
0: Well, it was just very it, it was very erratic. You know, there were plays where you could hear Mike calling out a set. And I don't know if, if Trey Mann was waiting for cuts and just dribbling while waiting for cuts up top or uh, if, you know, I was confused as to what exactly the sets were and whether that was on execution or whether that was on the team not necessarily knowing how to execute what was called. Uh, which I guess is execution. So I guess whether that was on Trey Mann or whether you know Mike White was just calling plays that we hadn't seen before, uh, I'm not sure, Eric.
1: Yeah, I thought Florida wasn't ready for. Uh, I, I thought they weren't ready for how Kentucky played defense, and one of the one of the ways that kind of played out was the fact that uh, Kentucky was hedging ball screens and it caused Florida all kinds of trouble and before the Kentucky game um, the other day I was talking to an SEC assistant not Kentucky but we were talking about um, how do you guard the Gators and I said I, I told him I was like hey uh, you know the teams are having success pushing Trey Mann back towards the center line and and, and hard hedging him uh, and, and taking him off his angles and uh, Kentucky did that and you know as much as I do think part of that is 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 Trey Mann needs to come off those screens with a little bit more decisiveness I also think it's a little bit of a schematic problem. I think that Colin Castleton um, sets the screen and is just hanging out there for too long. I think he needs to explode after he sets yep. those screens towards the hoop, or he can even slip it. Um, slipping against the team that you know is going to hedge is a great way to combat um, hedging defenses. And the other thing too was, so let's say let's say Trey Mann's on the left side of the floor um, going to his right hand with a pick and roll, and Kentucky hedges it and starts pushing Man towards the, the, the center of the floor. Well, if you're know a a team is going to be hedging um you need to have someone lift on the right side of the court and and give a quick escape valve for Trey Mann to swing the ball to who can then um hit hit Colin Castleton on the roll because if you get a quick reversal out of a hard hedging defense um suddenly you're playing four on three so as much as yeah I do think that sometimes Trey Mann um he kind of needed to come off picks a little bit harder um, so that he could beat that hedge um, I also think you know Florida needs to Florida needs to have their big slip or at least get out of that screen really really fast also by if you slip it or you get it off that screen really fast if you're Colin Castleton or Omar Payne, you also um, allowed the opportunity for Trey man to split the hedge and split yeah. between the hedging defender and his man um, but because he wasn't there was no opportunity for him to split it which meant he was going to run right into the hedge and I also think on the opposite side of the floor you need to lift someone and give an opportunity for Trey man to see the hedge and get the ball out of there quickly. And then, then you play four and three. So, um, well,
0: that's uh, what I, texted I just, you about, right. I, I know I texted you at some point about how he's got to engage hedges and traps. As soon as, as soon as they engage defense engages with two, he's got to move the ball. And oftentimes, you know, if I had one criticism about Trey man, who again, I thought was Florida's best player uh, in the game, Eric, but, but I think, by the time he moves the ball, sometimes he's either been pushed too far from the basket. So if the guy's exploded, even if his player explodes through a screen, it's, it's really far from the basket. It's a difficult pass. Or he's near half court or worse, he's in a corner. Um, and, you know, I don't know they've got to coach him uh, through that and, and do better.
1: Yeah, I, I actually just don't like looking back on some of those plays. Um I do think that some of it is Trey Mann, but also you've got to have a guy lifting to at least the level of the ball so that when the hedge comes, um he has a pass out of that. I, I think that Florida was spacing the floor with two guys right at the, like the like almost both in the corner and therefore mm-hmm. there there just wasn't really an angle for him to get the ball out quick. I I mean I'm not I'm not absolving Trey Mann of all blame there was opportunity sure. could have gotten the ball out um but I also think there is a little bit of a, a schematic um efficiency with being ready for a team that's going to hedge ball screens and it just didn't seem like Florida was prepared for it.
0: No, I agree with that. Uh, and you know, the other thing that bothered me was, uh, the, you know, we, I think when fans see too much dribbling, I, I don't know if you saw this on the telecast and I was going to ask you about it because we, you know, they talked about all this transition basketball and maybe without Chianta, you lose one of your best transition pieces, but Um, I think when people think of too much dribbling, they think of Andrew Nimhar dribbling around and probing a defense, right? For angles. They think of half court offense. I thought Florida dribbled too much last night on their chances and transition. Like when Florida did rebound the ball, Eric, like, I felt like guys would start to run, but like, instead of making the next pass, Uh, When people are sprinting up the floor and you need to pass the ball to move in transition and guys were like content to run up the floor dribbling the ball and a defense always going to get back faster that way.
1: Yeah, there's there's a lot of old, you know, older school coaches that that say uh, that's like a hard rule for them that you have to pass the ball over half court. Um, I'm not super into that. Um, there is part of me that, like, I'm a big believer in you dribble until someone stops you in transition. If you can get to the middle of the floor, um, but yeah, you, I mean, you look at uh, you look at how Florida played. They had eight possessions in transition last night. Eight. Um, mm. That is not a lot. Um, that is not a lot of opportunities, and and I I think not again it was it was in it was in, <laughs> it was in Florida's uh, it it was in Florida's game plan to to not push it. I mean, you saw earlier in the season when even if Florida got scored on, you saw the way that their their wings sprinted up the floor, and you saw the way Trey Mann cut hard to the ball in the same spot of the floor so that he could get it inbound and push it, and and that wasn't happening. And and I think that that was a schematic choice. I don't think that was. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't think it was those guys choosing not to do that. I think that Florida had the game plan not to run, um, and also um, I don't often have, always have the opportunity to do this, but uh, I was listening to uh, to the radio broadcast before the game, and mm. uh, and that was something that that White actually told uh, Mick Hubert. They were talking, he said like, "Hey, you know, like if we if we want to, uh, you know, if the opportunity there, we're we're going to run. Um, if not, we're going to be a little bit more patient." And um, you know what? Like, I I'm I am okay with with that mindset, just like as a general basketball. Um, mindset, but again, I, I, I don't just, I'm not sure how much of a concerted effort they really, they really made to to run last night. And, um, uh, that again, when you're, when you're really struggling to score against the team, you're really struggling to score in the half court. I think that's an opportunity where you've got to say, Hey, can we really just try to push the ball and try to score before they get set up?
0: Yeah. I mean, that's kind of what I, I just want them to be aggressive. And, you know, to me, when you do have guys that sprint up the floor, you know, pass on the ball. Especially, like, I get your point, like, attack the defense until somebody steps up and tries to stop you off the bounce. But when you have fast guys running with Trey Mann, like Scotty Lewis and Tyree Appleby, like, there's certainly an argument to be made to, to go ahead and pass the ball up past half court when those guys are the ones sprinting down the floor. Especially when Tyree is going to be so much better in space against Kentucky than he's going to be in a half-court set. And I just didn't feel like... Florida did any of that. And by the way, Eric is being very nice and Canadian when he says seven transition possessions. is not a lot like that. <laughs> that is a minuscule number of transition opportunities.
1: Uh, and uh, for those who want to know, so, so he yeah, has eight possessions. They had three turnovers and three points on those. Uh,
0: marvelous. On those, on those marvelous. Transitions.
1: <laughs> so, so again, I mean, some people would look at that and say, well, obviously transition wasn't working for them. Um, there's a reason they abandon it, but um, uh yeah, I I just think you you look at the way they were they were struggling to score in the half court and say, yeah, you you just you've got to try to do something to uh to score before they set up and um I just I just didn't feel like Florida set up in a particular way where they were uh they were planning on really making the transition attack uh, a central part of what they were trying to do. Um so which again, I, I'm not someone who like I would I, like I'm okay with teams being efficient, however efficiency comes. There is not one style of basketball that I think you have to play to be good. I know a lot of people think you you have to run. Um, you don't have to. Um, you can be efficient other ways, but hey, if you're not efficient in other ways, um, trying to push it in transition is something uh, something you should probably try to do.
0: so we're gonna do defense now because well, you know what we're not gonna do defense now because I know you wanted to talk about. Um, the fact that so Florida sets aren't working, Florida isn't scoring in transition. And then Florida plays a lot of isolation basketball. How did that go for the Gators, Eric?
1: <laughs> yeah, isolation basketball. Um, this was uh, this was something that was pretty funny to me on the broadcast. Um, uh, they they they. this is something that has happened the last two games on the broadcast. They have said, um, you know, oh, well, you know, Florida really wants to move the ball offensively. And like my response to that would be like, do they? And, and I'm not trying to be—I'm not trying to be facetious. It's just they have isolated more than any team in the country. And last night they called multiple isolations um, for players like Anthony DeRuji who had, um, so this is something they ran for uh, uh, Keontae Johnson a bunch. And they've clearly just like slid, slid Anthony DeRuji into that role um, where he sets a screen, he catches the ball at the top and, and they space out for him with the the five man um, ducking in and trying to seal. Um, It's worked really well for um, Keontae Johnson where it's worked a couple times for, for Anthony I I I don't think it's a bad, and again, I'm not even saying it's a bad set, but it the fact of the matter fact. is the fact of the matter is um, a lot of people on broadcast are saying like, Hey, Florida wants, Florida wants to move the basketball. And I truly want to say like, do they, because they, they're just caught, call- they're calling a lot of isolations. Um, they're, they're, they're not, their offense is not particularly constructed in a way that the ball is, needs to move side to side. So it's just kind of a funny statement to me when people say, Oh, Florida wants to move the ball side to side. And uh, again, so last night they had 18 um, isolation possessions and netted them five points and some of those some of those were definitely you know the offense uh some set was blown up they get deep in the shot clock you've got to isolate that's going to happen but again i think there was a lot of called isolation plays and uh they frankly just did not net many points
0: yeah i I mean there was one that you texted me about in the arena that was right in front of me where you had you were convinced they had called an isolation play for deruji and in fact uh they had um based on everything Mike White said right before the play started. it, it was, To be fair, on that one, Florida scored. Kentucky knew it was coming, too. And, uh, you know, in, in any event. Um, so, yeah, just not very productive night offensively. We haven't even gotten into defense. Uh, Florida really, you know, I thought, troubled with rotations uh, from the beginning, as Eric pointed out. Um, you know, frightening kind of minutes from Osayo Sifo, who, again, I mean, we're not trying to beat these things up. And I'm sure, you know, I love the stories about Osayo's effort and and that his attitude is contagious and all that. That's all great. But, you know, uh, Clemson's a top 20 team in the country and the second highest offensive rating player that they have is PJ Hall right now. (laughs) I mean, you know, and and I don't know, like, yeah, I mean, PJ's playing only 18% of Clemson's possessions, but those minutes are going up to where he's playing 12, 13 minutes a night and and playing extremely productive basketball. And so, you know, that's a choice that this staff made. And right now, you know, it doesn't appear to be the right one.
1: Yeah, I mean – I I just feel, especially if you're going to go the junior college route, you're probably looking for a guy that can contribute right away. And that just was, I I would say, never the case. I would be truly interested. I don't know if anyone has asked White, and I don't know if anyone would ask him now, just given how things went, because I'm not trying to set him up for for some answer we can all laugh at or roll our eyes at. Um, But I'm truly curious if the staff looked at him and said, um, oh, is this is a guy we think can play right away, or oh, we think this is a guy who can play down the line because he was a junior college player that was that they signed before they knew that players were going to get this year of eligibility back. So they were under the assumption he was going to have two years to play. Um, in Gainesville. Um, maybe they thought they were going to redshirt him because um, they thought that they were going to have a power forward rotation of Keontae Johnson and Anthony DeRuji, which um, I feel like you would be pretty darn sure you could get 40 good minutes out of. And of course that's not the case now. Um, so maybe they thought they were going to redshirt him. him. Um, but again, I, I, I think with most junior college guys, you're looking for someone who can play right away. And I'm just genuinely curious if they, if they expected that from Musifo or if they didn't expect that. But uh, right now it's just looking like a guy who, um, they, they have to play because they don't have a lot of options at the power forward spot. Um, but uh, I, I, again, just given what he did at the junior college ranks, I, I this is, this is about exactly what, what I would have expected.
0: Yeah, it really is. And then defensively, we're seeing the impact of, of no Keontae Johnson, at least first and foremost, I think Eric with, with Florida um, leaving the Florida state game 21st in, in Kim Palm defensive efficiency, keeping in mind that, that number was probably better because the numbers from the prior year are baked in and now all the way outside of the top 50.
1: Yeah. uh, One thing that's super concerning from like, let's look at their analytics standpoint. And again, this is like, uh, uh, this is something that's like the, it's not the diagnosis. It's a a symptom, I guess. But uh, so, so Florida is giving up like 51% of the catch and shoot attempts that Florida has given up have been wide open. Um, last year was 43 as uh well, you know, and last year was not a good offensive or sorry, not a good defensive team, but they're giving up 43% of their catch and shoot attempts, uh, unguarded. Um, and, uh, the, this year yeah. it's up to 51. So they're giving up a lot of wide open three point attempts. Um, something that you will always hear Florida's coaching staff say defensively is a, uh, uh something you really want to do is limit three point attempts. Um, Florida is, uh, Florida has actually, you know, done that, uh, to a decent level, uh, limiting three point attempts. Um, but, uh, they are, you know, giving up a lot of quality ones. And, and I think a lot of that is just, you know, pure, pure breakdowns, um, with just not enough guys on the perimeter that can, th- that, that are, you know, difference makers as perimeter defenders. I, I mean, we can certainly, there are some schematic problems, but I think you also just look at it and, and Florida just does not have elite wing stoppers on, on. On defense, um, and and I think that it's it's just so hard to play defense when uh, when you can't keep guys in front of you off the dribble. And um, as much as Florida has had a lot of trouble guarding the pick and roll, um, which they are now down to 327th in the country in pick and roll defense. That was 327th. Um, th- there's problems there. Um, but I feel like there's also just like some, some of these individual guys. They're just um. Uh, they're not good enough individual defenders to to be difference makers and either Florida has to try to scheme up something wild, um, or they, they, they could be in trouble.
0: Yeah. I mean, they really could. Kentucky, not a team that, that, uh, has been anywhere near good in the field goal percentage, um, category or effective field goal percentage. Um, you know, 60% effective field goal percentage last night. Uh, you're not going to be, anyone doing that, let alone a team with future NBA players on it. Um, You know, Florida, uh, I thought, oh, you know, one reason I was optimistic at halftime, naively, was Florida was like down by six when Kentucky was shooting like 55%. (laughs) And I was like, well, I'm like, they're not going to make all these shots in the second half. Sure, a lot of them had been kind of unguarded and I wasn't real pleased with how Florida was defending, but uh, yeah, I mean, this is a staple of the culture and with, again, it's worth pointing out and and only fair uh, in such a pod to point out that, that Florida had defended at a very, very high level in their first few games of the season um, with Keontae Johnson, but without him, you know, they have removed one piece and are just really clueless. And that's, I think, extremely concerning.
1: Yeah, I think you've also got to look at, you know, like Boston College, not a very good defensive player. Or sorry, defense. defense. I'm looking at some other stats while I talk. Not a very good yeah. offensive team. You're, you know, you play Army and, and Stetson, um, not great offensive teams. And then you, uh, you know, you 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 hang in there with LSU, who's a really good offensive team. And that's with yeah. a really good effort, which is um, why I was... Uh, <laughs> So much higher. Um, I will have to also just address, you know. I, I Neil, I don't, I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but on uh, on Monday I went on Stadium and Gale and was pretty positive towards this team coming off uh, two really good games against Vanderbilt and <laughs> LSU and suggested that they might get two, two big wins this week. And uh, uh, now plenty of people have pointed out that I, you know, suck at basketball coverage. So just got to acknowledge <laughs> that. Thank you for everyone who has hung around after hearing me on Stadium and Gale and say this team was uh, uh, going to hang in this week. But, um, uh, yeah. I mean, uh, the, this, the, the, defensive performance, I, I, I just wonder, like, like I said, I don't think that Florida has elite, de- de- especially on their perimeter, elite defensive players. I don't think that they're full of a bunch of bad defensive players. And I know that like you and right. me talked last year about, Hey, how good of a defender is Noah Locke? You probably thought he was better than I did. Um, you know, we have both been on Scotty Lewis is not as good of a defender as, as his perception is. Um, you know Anthony Derugia, someone I thought was going to come in and and defend a lot better. Uh, I think Florida has a lot of you know decent uh, decent defensive players, but it's just not coming together right now. And and again, something that has come through on the broadcast, and I'm sure it was five times as as loud last night, was Scotty Lewis screaming at guys defensively after Florida broke down and like had to foul or gave up an and one or barely tipped a ball out of bounds, um, the, uh, against Alabama, that was uh, Colin Castleton who was yelling that stuff out. Um, again, I, I see that happening and it's like, Hey, that's, I very much like seeing that kind of leadership from, from players like Scotty Lewis and and Colin Castleton. But I, I, I just wonder, um, to to what extent is this players not executing to what extent is it the, the the scheme Florida is coming in with? Um, I'm just, I'm, I'm interested because yeah, whatever it is, it's, it's just not happening right now.
0: So I, you know, as Eric knows, and as some of you who've listened for a while know, I am a defensive coordinator um, for, for a high school team. And I just don't think schematically like Florida, the two things I would immediately fix and I'll be brief and get Eric's thoughts on them. I think Florida needs to switch less. And uh, honestly, given the way that Colin Castleton competes on the glass, given the way Anthony DeRugi competes on the glass, uh, and I know Eric might not be as fond of this second idea, but I might try sort of junk defense types, junk defenses with, a, with several different zones. Um, because I just think Florida has a, has a terrible problem preventing straight line drives that get into the paint. And then they either get confused and switches or help side is late or when help side comes, it frees up open shooters. Um, And, you know, these are like three fairly obvious observer problems. And I think schematically Florida's got to fix that. And then obviously they've got to address the way they're defending pick and rolls. And I think, you know, really they need to go to drop coverage and, and defend them like Vanderbilt does. So those are my very brief Thoughts on Florida's defense and what type of schematic adjustments I'd make. Eric, tell me all the reasons I'm wrong about everything.
1: <laughs> uh, ooh, that, I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure what I disagree with there. I mean, we've always talked about how we think Florida switches too much. Um, I, you know, Neil, I know many people have always texted into the show. And, and you know, one of the great hypotheticals in, in you know, in the modern ages, what would happen if a Neil Blackman coached team played against an Eric Fawcett coached high school basketball team? Um, I can tell you this if you're playing an Eric Fawcett coach basketball team you are going to see junk defenses Um, I you know I coach at a school with 300 kids Um, we play in the the largest division in our city so schools of two three four thousand kids Um, I am used to scheming up junk defenses and I love them and I think that when you look at some groups of players like like again at this at this point I think you've got to look at Florida's team and say uh, with the individual defensive players we have is there is there a chance that we can be a good man-to-man defensive team? And I, I, you know, maybe they can be good. I just don't think they can be great. And I think if you can look up and down the roster and say, oh no, I just, we do not have the the group that can be a great man-to-man defensive team. You have got to look in other directions. So, um, I am a big believer in junk defenses and, and it just seems like too, like even if you're just a Florida fan and you just watch Gators games, how many times over the last couple of years has Florida played a team like, um, like Ole Miss or Texas A&M and Florida comes out and they're, they're up by 10 at the half. And in the second half, those teams come out and in some kind of zone defense, you're not expecting. And they steal a couple of possessions that way and, and go plus five or plus six. Uh, I, I just think that totally works in the modern game throwing different defenses. I, I think that it's like, if I were to look into the crystal ball and look forward, um, to what is college basketball or basketball in the whole looking like in, in five years, um, I I think the teams are going to be switching defenses like they switch offensive sets. I I think it is going to be frantic how much teams change defenses. I think that's the evolution of the game. You're starting to see it now a little bit. I think it is going to get cranked up to a hundred. And so, so changing defenses, uh, possession to possession, changing zone looks within a possession. um, That is the future of college, of college basketball. Um, So I am to all for it and, you know, drop coverage. That's another thing. You look, you look, you look, the college basketball follows the NBA. Um, the NBA, you see, so much drop coverage. Um, the teams that we see run it in in uh, in the college basketball really well, like Juwan Howard, um, like you mentioned, like Stackhouse at, at Vanderbilt. It's the NBA guys that are bringing it to the to the college game, and I just really like it. I, I really like how um, you can you can guard a lot of the pull up three attempts from from all these ball handlers in college that are looking to uh, to get to their pull up three off pick and rolls. I like that it's um, prioritizing walling off at the rim and and eliminating layup attempts um and i love that it encourages um floaters and mid-range pull-ups um which are the worst shots in basketball and the the, the shots that college players are so much more prone to taking than than in any other level so i'm a big drop um, coverage guy um i i think again when you see a team like vanderbilt doing it really well who's you know a lower level high major team and you see Michigan running it really really well which is a high high level high major team um
0: I, I, I just I,
1: yeah I just I I th- I think it's a I think it's a great way to play pick and roll defense and uh um again when you're 327th in the country in pick and roll defense um I'm not sure what you have to lose by by switching to something that also I will say I don't think the drop coverage is difficult to to implement because again lots of the time you're going 2 for 2 you're not engaging like like the whole point about doing drop defense is that you have two players guarding your two offensive players involved in the pick and roll. You have your screen defender and your ball defender guarding the ball handler and the screen setter. You're not you're not you're not banking on help side defenders and the player that's in position to stunt and then in the position to help the helper. You are you're going two for two and you're engaging less players and I think it's I think it's easy to implement and I think it's easier for players to learn so yeah, I I would I would love to see it. <laughs> let, they'll let let my 10-minute rant uh, come to that.
0: No, I mean, I like it. I just, those are kind of the ideas I had. And you know, as a, we do teach pack line defenses wherever I've gone. And I think that they're, I think it's a good defensive system, but I also think like when you're struggling to play in Florida isn't a pack line defense, it's, it's kind of a hybrid man to man, but, but Mike has shown that he's willing to to switch kind of the style of the zone within a possession Um you know why not switch up zone defenses, especially with this team, which I do think competes on the on the on on the offensive. Well, they compete on the glass on both sides of the ball. So, you know, the biggest question always in a zone defense is, are we going to be able to rebound out of it? And and Florida, I think, can. They have the players to rebound out of it. Um, so it just seems like something that they want to do because the switching stuff is just getting clobbered um, without killing. Um, getting-
1: uh, counterpoint, um, yeah. Florida is 224th in the country in defensive rebounding. Um, how can it get that much worse by going into his uh, own? Sure. I mean, that, you know, that, that, that's kind of my take is it's, it's one thing if like you, like, like uh, you said, I do think that Florida's players compete on the glass. I don't like, once again, we talked toughness last podcast. I don't think it's an effort problem. I don't think it's a toughness problem. Um, I think you're, I think Florida's getting just getting so scrambled that guys are out of position when shots go up and, and it's tough to box out when you're yeah. already scrambling in rotation. So I, I see the fact that Florida isn't a good defensive rebounding team right now um, anyway. So I, I kind of feel like, Hey, what's, what's there, what's there to lose. If you go from being the 224th uh, defensive rebounding team to 264th, how much of a difference does that make? I, I, I mean, a couple. May, that's only a couple possessions, but, uh, you might gain it with the way that you're going to defend. And sorry, you also alluded to something that I thought was pretty interesting. I cannot, I think this was the post. It, it was either the pregame when I was uh, listening to, to, to coach white, talk to, uh, to Mick, or it was, uh, uh, or it was post game. I think it was the post game, but he did talk about the fact that they were struggling to guard straight line drives. And he talked about um, how they needed to respect the gaps a little bit more and guys needed to help in the gaps to, uh, to help, you know, these straight line drives. And that is definitely a very pack liney type thing to say. I thought there was a couple of times last season where Florida went to a, um, I wouldn't call it the true pack line, but they definitely said. Um, Hey, we're going to rely on guys one pass away to stunt and dig in and help in the gaps versus a, a, you know, a a player coming from the weak side baseline to be a help defender. Um, So after Florida, you know, has another game where they struggle to guard drives. I am interested to see if they try to pack it in a little bit more um, and try to help the gaps that way. Um, Of course, that might mean giving up some more catch and shoot threes, which uh, Florida's coaching staff doesn't really want to do. That's just what you're going to have to give up in the pack line. But, um, man, I'd, I'd rather give up some some threes than than. You know, easy shots at the rim over and over and over again.
0: Yeah, I really think that's a great point. Uh, that is a great point. And the one little counterpoint to the counterpoint before we move on to <laughs> two other things, I still think some of the rebound, I think they're better than that 224. I do think they're getting scrambled, like you said. You know, I keep talking about getting lost in switches. I think that affects your ability to box out defensively. I also think some of it is schedule, Eric. I mean, you're at Florida State, Alabama, LSU. Kentucky, so four of your eight games are four of the top 25 teams in the country in rebounding. I mean, you know, um, so I think some of those numbers are, you know, I, I don't know if it's going to get now. It doesn't get any easier Tuesday, by the way, they're playing a team really, <laughs> and that can really rebound at Ole Miss. But, but down the schedule, I promise there are less effective rebounding teams. Well,
1: um I, I know what you're alluding to. I won't give your old Miss stat, but Mississippi State, ninth in the country in offensive rebounding. That's in two games. Um, in three ga- <laughs> in three games, it's Tennessee, they're 51st in the country in offensive rebounding. Um, and I <laughs> would, you, would you like to guess what Georgia is in fourth? Fourth game coming up? Tenth twenty <laughs> third, which shocked me. And oh. then you're back and then you're back to Vanderbilt. Who is not a very good team, but 73rd in the country in offensive rebounding. So um, one, two, three, four, five. Oh, and then you've got West Virginia, seventh in the country Ooh. in offensive rebounding. I'm just running up and down Ken Palm, everybody. Um, and then you've got South Carolina, 22nd in offensive rebounding. Sorry, this is great podcasting, but I can't, I can't stop. Um, and then you go back to LSU, 39th. Um, then you go back to Tennessee, um, and then it looks like. Um, Oh no never mind Texas A&M is 59th in the country. Uh, okay. Man you are there is uh there I is still breaks from No I didn't know either. I'm 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 truly not. Arkansas is also a top 50 offensive rebounding team. Auburn is a top 50 offensive rebounding team. Okay, this is actually a wild stat we have just uncovered. Florida will not play a game the rest of the season where a team is outside the top 60 in offensive rebounding. That is bizarre that is absurd. I cannot believe we just found that on this podcast, but that is true even your or sorry Vanderbilt is the lowest it's at 73rd so they everyone is within um everyone other than 10 than uh than Vanderbilt is within the top the top 60 Vanderbilt is 73rd so uh oh that's a crazy stat that's SEC basketball for you right there
0: that's great that is crazy you would think that there would be some relief there's not and shows you what I uh what I know thinking that <laughs> surely it has to get easier than this it I it,
1: thought I thought so too I was just like oh this, this podcast bit will be me going for the next four games and then uh, I just couldn't, uh, I couldn't stop oh. my goodness
0: yeah so um this is just you know all in all not a good performance we went way longer on the actual Kentucky game than I think we wanted to go <laughs> but we'll have a, a just a long show for you guys um so my thought leaving the building and chris's thought too and i think uh, eric's eric's thought based on some of our conversations before we recorded on this fine sunday um, is that look uh, the administration has to evaluate where things are um, with the program right now and i don't mean that you know mike white necessarily needs to be fired although i'm certain based on everything that we saw on, on social media, that there were plenty of people who wouldn't have minded if there was a change made last night. Um, you know, I don't know if that's something that necessarily is going to happen. I think that the conversation is kind of complicated. Uh, and I think that our job doing this podcast is to try to flesh out that complicated conversation. Cause right now, um, I don't think that things have gone are going very well. I don't like some of the things that I'm seeing in the program as a, as a basketball person. I don't like, obviously as a fan, it's no fun to get blown out twice in one week. Uh, It's not good to get your pants beat off by uh, a a three and six Kentucky team on your home floor. Uh, You know, none of these things are good, Eric. And and I think it's time to kind of take a hard look at that. Yeah, I, I,
1: I think so. And, and one of the things that, um, that really kind of, uh, I guess, stings. Is that I, I do feel like the team is starting to, uh, or the program, I should say, is starting to lack identity. Um, I thought that Florida was going to be, you know, so so Mike White comes into Gainesville, and it was we're going to play fast. I, I, I knew that from, uh, I knew that from the beginning that was going to be tough because of history. Um, but you, you know, here's the fact of the matter, and and I said earlier, I don't think you need to play fast to win um, if you're really efficient in the half court. But, but, but here's the thing, and I don't want to say this rudely, but you know Mike White has said that playing fast is in his DNA. That, that's simply not true. Uh, you, you don't go into a game and have eight transition opportunities and, and not really give it an attempt if playing fast is, is truly in your DNA. Like, again, you, you, look, at, you look at Nate Oates at Alabama— playing fast is in, is in his DNA. Everywhere he's gone every season, no matter what, they play fast. No matter if they turn the ball over on a couple possessions to start a game by playing fast, they continue to play fast. Playing fast is in their DNA. Um it's not in Florida's DNA. And again, I don't say that as like a huge slight. Oh, cuz I don't I don't think you need to play fast to win. But if you're trying to find your identity in playing fast, that's just that's simply not Florida's identity. Um and and I just see when they when they struggle to struggle to score they don't go to what was you know supposed to be their their identity their their dna playing fast um it makes you say like wow like where where does this team's identity lie and um i also look you know i i I do remember back um two seasons ago where you know igor kulchov and, and jalen hudson were out there and I said um you know Mike White's gonna be able to get anyone to defend because he got these guys to defend and Florida was a great defensive team um uh-huh. you know to to be able to to be able to roll out you know Jalen Hudson at the five Noah Locke at the three um you know Michael Car with the two lineups and and defend at a top 15 level I was like man my, my coach White's gonna get anyone to defend this is incredible um that that's that's obviously not the case so so for me I just I, I see some I- identity problems that um that make those losses kind of seem seem even worse
0: yeah i think that's really well said and you know that's that's what i was wondering like mike white talked about transition offense all the time and now i think opposing teams can go into living rooms and if they're competing get sorted for recruits you know they could say well look mike might tell you you're gonna play fast and get up and down but they don't really do that and then you know, I don't know where the defensive energy has gone. Uh, I th- also think Florida – yeah, I mean, Florida pressed some last night and it helped them cut a lead from like 23 to 12, I think, at one point, Eric. And then it got out of control again uh, – or 20 to 12, I'm sorry. But, um, you know, I just don't feel like Florida is very aggressive either. And I felt like those, those early Florida teams under White were aggressive, which is part of the, the lack of an identity, right? Like that – 21 and 13 team that you referenced that defended pretty well, and that was albeit there wasn't really who we didn't know who the guy was on offense, although they did have a couple games that they won where they just isolated Chris Gioza and he made a play, right? But, um, I think that team is really good, and like I know that a lot of people think that team was disappointing, but it was 21 and 13 versus the third toughest schedule in the country, and it had they won more quadrant one games than anybody in college basketball, yeah, entering the NCAA tournament. And essentially, I thought they were snake bit. They got over aggressive with their schedule, Eric, got kind of a rough placement seed wise, and lost a, a great game to Texas Tech in the second round. But since then, uh, we have seen the program kind of lose what its identity is, what its identity was, and ever so slowly. Uh, they aren't defending really well, which we thought, like you said, what's going to be the cultural mainstay
1: under Mike White? Oh, well,
0: they're always going to defend. And even I even saw like a couple weeks ago, I think it was Seth Greenberg who's was on TV, and it was, oh, Mike White's teams are always going to defend. And, you know, I, I remember that's when I stopped and I was like, ah, are you sure? Because, you know, it doesn't seem like they are always going to defend. So they're not playing fast, which they said they were going to do. Uh, they're not defending, and now with this loss, that's the fifth straight loss for the program to Kentucky. So he had started off very well against the Wildcats. Is now uh, three and seven versus Kentucky. Obviously, he's zero and six versus uh, FSU. Although you could make the argument that you know it's zero and five either way. He hasn't beaten um, Florida State, uh, and so there's these numbers that are kind of sticking out and things that are that are you know becoming questionable that were once part of the identity and i think you have to make those things uh part of your evaluation when when you decide what to do with with coach white whose contract eric runs through the 2024-25 season
1: uh yeah there's definitely that that's got to play some kind of a role um and uh You know, the, the one thing, Neil, I'm going to ask you this and then I'll talk for a bit because you're going to have to think about, you might have to think about it for a little while and and you can maybe even skirt the question, um, if you want, but, um, I, I think one of the questions you ask is, um, you know, even down Keontae Johnson is, is, is Florida getting the most out of their talent? Um, is this talent level, a team that gets blown out by Alabama and Kentucky, um, or are they better than that? And therefore they're just not getting the most out of their guys right now. Um. Um, I personally don't think they're getting getting the most out of their guys. I, I don't think a lot of their players are are getting put in in positions to to succeed. And and I feel like there's a lot of levels to that. I feel like once again, um, the lineups they put out are not max. They're they're not helping anyone. They're not helping the team on the scoreboard. And I don't think it's putting some of these individual players in in position. And you know there was something too on the on the post game, and and this was uh, this was actually this was meant as a shout out to Samson recensive, um, who obviously hit a couple more shots in garbage time, like he did in against Alabama. And, and, um, I forget who asked, um, I forget who asked white about recensive and, and, um, and, and Mike white complimented, um, he complimented Samson and said, Hey, like, yeah, he ha- you know, he's, he's, he's hardly played and he hasn't said a word. And then he said, have we even, you know, have we given him an opportunity? Have we, have we put him out there even? And he's like, I, I don't, I don't know. Like, so, which I know he might've just being like being coy and and doing kind of coach speak. But I do think the way that he uses lineups, he is doing a lot of throwing stuff out there and, and seeing if it works. And, and sometimes you've got to do that. I I, I understand that, but uh, again, and I'm I'm not, I'm not even sure if this is a Mike White problem, but uh, once we're talking like program up and down, who's putting themselves in, in, in positions to win. I mean, so, so, so I've said on this podcast, I'm not trying to, you know, flex or whatever, but there's a couple of college teams that I have that I've, consulted for. Um, It's hard for lineup data to not come out in those kinds of things. And one of the things I've always said, and and these teams have implemented is like, there's got to be an assistant coach or a Dobo or a grad assistant or a manager um, that has their hands on this lineup data. So that when you start throwing things out that, that you at least know what you're throwing out there. And again, for, for White to be like, I don't even remember if in the last couple of games we've, we've thrown out Samson Sensev in, in real minutes or if it's been just garbage time. Again, he might have just been being coy, but I, I truly wonder if he, he he just doesn't really... And some people just don't really think that way about you know what players have on the floor. They say, hey, here's my five guys on the floor. I'm going to coach them. And there's something to be said about that. I, I I just think someone has to be responsible for giving Mike White the information he needs. Um, I, I also think, again, we, you go into games where... Uh, where I just feel like Florida wasn't prepared for the way that Kentucky was going to play defense. And I say that they go into games and, and their their plan is to isolate a bunch against Alabama and Kentucky, where I, I just don't think that that was a prudent strategy. And I wonder, you know, where's the scouting at? Is that, again, is that someone on your staff? Is that the assistance? Is it someone else? I mean, I, I don't feel like Florida has went into games with with great game plans. So so some of it, I even wonder if it's just like not even, you know, white inherently, but um, are, are they getting the most out of their scouting? Are they getting the most out of you using basketball technology to, to maximize the players that they have. Um, Those are tough questions for guys that are not in the program, not in the athletic administration. But I I would say, you know, this goes back to the original question that I rambled on to give you plenty of time to think of of, is Florida getting the most out of their current players. And, And I personally don't believe that they are.
0: Yeah. I actually wrote down, are they maximizing talent on my notes for the show? And I don't know, If they are, and I'll say, I don't know if they are anymore. And, and, you know, as well as I do, that this is a debate that, that people who I think were wrong a couple years ago about white uh, you know, I think you can now say that there is, there is merit to some of the things they're talking about, about recent player development, because, you know, I'm not sure that a team with this kind of talent should be losing the way they are to Alabama who if you do a talent composite isn't as talented as Florida uh, or a team like Kentucky who hasn't played very well and has some really ugly losses. And by the way, was without one of their most talented players who's very good at doing something that Florida can't defend. Uh, right. last night.
1: <laughs> as was, <laughs> yeah. as was Alabama.
0: Yeah, true. So, I mean, it's not like exactly two of the guys that are really good at doing something that Florida has not had much of a clue to defend without Keontae Johnson, didn't even play in these games. Um, so, you know, I don't think that this is just about Keontae. I will defend Mike White on rotations a little bit just because uh, Florida took two weeks off after Keontae collapsed. So there, wasn't, there weren't those practices where they could, okay, what is our identity without Keontae? What are we going to do? And I do think to some extent Mike has got to tinker and experiment and see, you know, hey, maybe this will stick, maybe this will stick. And unfortunately, because they took two weeks off and didn't play Florida Atlantic, didn't play James Madison, you know, played none of those games uh, for understandable reasons, of course. Um, You know, some of that experimentation that we might not otherwise see if Keontae were available, we are seeing. So I'm not going to blame him too much for that, although I did think last night you could make – you know, sort of these uh, specific criticisms with the Osifo lineup. I also – and I know that it, it, maybe you'll even hard eye roll here, Eric, but I've seen enough of Niles lane early in the season to wonder, look, we're struggling defensively with drives, and, like, he's already one of the best defenders on the roster. Like, why is he not on the floor? Um, You know, I mean, get him out there to stop people. You know, Milani and look at Milani Wilkinson at LSU. Like, he's playing – high-level minutes for Will Wade primarily because he can defend and help you stop people from getting in the paint. And, like, I'm not saying that Niles Lane should start, but I got to wonder why, like, he can't get more than one or two rotations um, when you can't get stops. Like, that's just curious to me. So I think you can make specific criticisms while also understanding that Florida naturally is trying to figure out what exactly their identity is without Keontae Johnson after taking a couple weeks off. From practice, but you know that still doesn't explain this defense shouldn't fall off a cliff uh, the way it has without Keontae, and it's still too talented uh, to to be struggling this much. And the last point on my rant, which I'll flip to you, is they also already flipped the roster. Like the idea that you know they weren't assembled to play the way that quote unquote is in Mike White's DNA. That project started after Florida went 20 and 16. And, you know, look, an argument I made at the time was a lot of programs would feel very fortunate to flip their whole roster after getting to the second round of the NCAA tournament, right? Um, Like, wow, most teams don't do that unless they go, you know, 13 and 20 and miss the postseason altogether. But that's not what happened at Florida. Well, Florida's just 24 and 15 since that roster flip, Eric. And that was after landing the best grad transfer in the country last year. Uh, so, I mean, they're 24 and 15. Obviously, they challenged themselves schedule wise, but that's not much of an improvement record wise from the 20 and 16 thing that precipitated the roster flip. So, are things stagnant? Uh, you know, I think you could make a very strong argument that they are. And I think the administration has to consider that.
1: Yeah. It's uh it's, it's, it's an interesting point. And again, I think so many people think of, of coaching and say like, Oh, either the coach is at a certain level. So he stays or he gets to a, a certain level. That's um, that's too poor. And then, then you fire him. I mean, and that's obviously a lot of the, what we see in, in college sports, but I think in a lot of ways it's um, college coaching is going to be like, Hey, it's not necessarily, Oh, we think this guy is, is awful. It's like, Hey, let's look to see who's on the free agent market and and, and can we improve? And, and that's kind of how how I might see things going if the season doesn't doesn't flip. Is I I don't know if it's gonna be Scott Strickland saying like no an, an absolute change needs to be made. But I I feel like he might be saying like hey you know these these you know <laughs> uh, famous coaching you know search firms or or agents. Do you say like hey who who could we get if if uh, we were to move on? And that might kind of inform the decision more than like a hard oh we don't feel like you know this is reaching the standard. But um, it's hard. I, I've got to say like, I, I, like, even as I, you know, said those few sentences there, it still just feels, feels weird coming out of my mouth. Like I, I, am I'm not very, this is one element of covering college sports that I'm not very good at. Um, I, yeah. I, feel like it's very tough to talk about, um, to talk about things like, like this. And, um, again, I still look at Florida's schedule and I say like, Hey, like, you know, we're going to know a lot more after this week. And I'm, and that's not me punting and saying, I don't want to deliver a take on the matter. Um, but uh, it is tough for me to imagine Florida looking at a, at a midseason change unless things like truly go to another level of of disaster, which, um, you know, playing in the SEC, there's plenty of opportunities to pick up more and more bad losses. Um, but that's yeah, that's kind of where I'm at with the with the situation.
0: Well, I, I think that's very fair. And I'm not going to as much as I think some of our listeners would love for me to make a make a take. Uh, and we've seen. Voices of restraint and voices very firmly in the in the pro Mike white camp You know edge closer to the other side or leave and head to the other side Uh in after yesterday and I understand being angry and I didn't think that that was the kind of performance that Should ever occur um, at, at a Florida basketball with Florida basketball now, you know, I think the program is in a different place, but you know, Florida might not be a uh, a blue blood program, but they're certainly one of the best programs in, in this century. Um, and, you know, the facilities are good. Uh, they're, they're not great anymore, um, but they're still very good. Uh, the, the arena is good. The recruiting base is excellent. Um, and, you know, I think that there's a lot of things and it's been proven that you can win at Florida. So there's lots of of reasons to think that it's an attractive job um, at the same time you know and a reason I I still hit pause on it Eric and you know I don't I know these aren't the most popular things to say in the world but they're just facts Mike White's won 113 games uh, he's won 56 SEC games since he arrived only John Calipari has more SEC wins in that span, that includes Rick Barnes, who has less SEC wins, and was hired at the same time. Uh, Mike White has won more NCAA tournament games than any other coach in the SEC, other than John Calipari. Bruce Pearl has also won five, um, but that's the only co- other coach with five in that time span. So you have to be mindful of what you're, what you'd be punting on if you make a change. Well, right? and 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 uh, and that's what I was
1: kind of referring to, even when I said. Um, the coaching change potential for a coaching change might be informed by who's on the the free agent mark. Because I think, again, if you've got a coach that, that, uh, is, is drastically falling short of the standard. Um, then you can say, Oh, do we look at, a you know, insert hot mid major name here and say, Oh, do we give that a chance? Um, I don't think that that's going to happen or I don't think that would happen where Florida says, Oh, we just need to move on and, and let's get, you know, in, insert whatever up and comer. Um, I, I think it might be like, hey, do we get do we get someone from a similar league um, who has had sustained success recently? Um, and and that would also be, you know what? Like again, I I don't, you know, I feel I, feel, I do feel dirty just talking about the possibility yeah, of, of, of people being up, uprooted. But but again, I I would probably find myself somewhere in the camp of like, would I want to gamble? I don't want to say maybe gamble too strong board. Would I want to give a give a chance to um, you know up and comer men? major coach who you think could have success at florida i i would be hesitant because like you said like like i mean here's the fact of the matter too if this is as bad as it gets for florida where they're you know uh top you know right now they're 41st in, in kenpom um if if they're if if their basement is being in the 40s in kenpom and like either just missing the tournament or being in a play-in game for the tournament um I mean, that's really not too bad in modern college basketball. The floor can fall out pretty quickly. If that's the floor of Mike white, what we're experiencing, uh, man, there is, there is far, far, far worse out there. Um, So, so again, I, 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 I'm with you there, Neil, where it's like, you know, it's not like, you know, as much as some people treat it, like it's been a disaster. It truly hasn't look around the country and look at some other teams that have had disasters. This is not one of them. Um, But uh, yeah, I, I do think again, has, has Florida maximized the talent that they've had? I, 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 don't think that they particularly have. So that's got to be looked at too.
0: Right. I mean, you, you would definitely be getting rid of a coach who's never had a, you know, not even nothing close to a losing season. Um, you know, by at any location that he's been at, but at Florida. Uh, so it's, you know, I guess it's a matter of, like you said, I think you'd have to know that you were going to bring in somebody that's proven that, you know, raises the ceiling. It's not a – I don't think it's a floor question. You know, I, I, it's hard to imagine Florida bottoming out uh, under Mike White. Uh, big game Tuesday night in that regard with uh, Ole Miss Rebels. Kermit Davis, uh, his team kind of surprised people. Maybe a year ahead of schedule, they go to the NCAA tournament in his first season. Uh, last year, they – only win 15 games and they have a losing season something that, that Mike White's never had uh, as a head coach uh, Kerman hadn't had a lot of them and, and he said so um, you know, dating back to his days at Idaho in, in the late 80s I And mean, this is a guy that's been a head coach for 30 something years uh, that was his fifth losing season so not something that's happened much to him um, and uh, I think that they, they struggled last year uh, but you know, they end up losing some guys and I thought, and I know Eric thought that this was going to be one of the better teams in the SEC. I picked them to finish sixth in the league. Uh, they've struggled a little bit out of the gate. Yeah, although they are six and four.
1: Yeah, they just got um, beat by LSU pretty good. That one, um, you know, I guess I guess we're now wondering just how exactly how good LSU is, but um I still think they're a really good team. Um, this guy just hammered by Alabama earlier in the season, but hey, we, uh, we know that can happen. Um, their defense is, is really good. Their defensive numbers are, are really solid no matter what, uh, what kind of metric you, you look at. Um, but I think for them, it's, it's been the problem is, has, has been their offense. Um, uh, so for Florida, who is just like desperately trying to get some stops defensively, um, this will be an interesting one, but uh, something that, you know, we can remember is, um, last season, um, Florida just hammers, um, Mississippi in, uh, in Florida, they get a really big win in front of, you know, me and my wife at a, at a rare game in Gainesville. And then, um, they meet for a second time, big adjustments from Kermit Davis and, and they just, they, they dominate Florida. So, um, so something that's, uh, something that could be tough against the Gators who have, uh, you know, playing a coach who has kind of, uh, the last time they met, really knew how to attack Florida's ball screen defense, um which is that again is you know we spent so long on this podcast last year talking about how bad florida's pick and roll defense was at times uh well this year it's it's a lot worse so i i see Ole miss as a team that can really uh, attack that um they use uh, they use pick and rolls a ton on over 30 percent of their possessions so uh, florida's going to have to be prepared to guard pick and rolls it's going to come at them on every possession
0: it is i think one thing florida can do is get into some trapping and, and play that 13 zone that they've uh, played quite a bit um, under under White. We've seen a little less of it this year, but I think you know maybe that that zone that kind of morphs back into man, back off some shooters a little bit, uh, force Ole Miss's guards to make plays. Uh, you know that that's was a bit of what it looks like LSU did. Uh, Ole Miss turned the ball twenty over twenty times against LSU. Uh, had only eleven assists, um, which is far. That's even fewer assists. Then, oh, no, it's not. It's one more assist than the Gators had against Kentucky. So, uh, but, but it's not very good. Uh, Ole Miss, you know, their inside, their inside players only scored seven points. Uh, their best two inside scorers uh, from a percentage standpoint scored seven points um, against LSU. Those are uh, Romello White, the grad transfer um, from Arizona State who is an interesting player and, uh, then KJ Buffen who uh, is kind of a poor man's Chuma Keke, I guess. Um, well,
1: that's <laughs> a funny, I, I, that's, no, no, that's fair. But I, I mean, the one thing that just really, I, I just find pretty bizarre is, is the play of, uh, Devante who I think is a lot better than he's shown. He had yeah. two points against LSU. Um, I, he wasn't very good against Auburn and I, I expected big things from him and, uh, he beat up on a bunch of uh, non-conference uh, mid-major teams. Um, but once uh, once the SEC plays, he has not been very good. But, uh, you know, what, what, one thing I think is hilarious, too, I don't know if, if you've seen it, Neil. But uh, uh, you, you know the story that was going around um, last year about when, when John Morant really broke out. And obviously Zion was Zion. Um, and it came out that um, that Zion Williamson and, and John Morant played on the same AAU team. And um, they were together and someone asked them, um, oh, like, which which one of you is the better player on that AAU team? And they kind of both looked at each other and then were like, well, uh, Devontae Shuler was the best player on, on that AAU team. And uh, I thought that was pretty funny because as much as, you know, people talk about the fact that those two were on the same team, Devontae Shuler was also on that AAU team back in the day. And apparently he was the best one. Um, I guess he's a little bit older than those guys. So so maybe that's why. But uh, yeah, I I kind of uh, maybe I was thinking about that interview going into the season when I was like, oh, yeah, like, you know, Terrence Davis was such a good guard for them. Brian Tyree was such a good guard for them. And um, kind of playing second fiddle to those guys throughout has been Devonte Shuler. And as a senior, I thought he was going to be the next one of those guys, um, but he has, he has not been so far.
0: Yeah, I think that's a great point. The other guy that I think has been a disappointment is uh, Demencio Domencio Vaughn, who they expected to be, you know, a guy that would come in and, and hit a lot of perimeter shots. They shot, they're shooting 28% from three point range as a team, um, which really does, give some Korean star idea that maybe Florida will pack it in a little bit more uh, Tuesday night. Certainly would hope that they do that and just make ten- make Tennessee, right? Make Ole Miss, uh, make threes because, you know, Domencio Vaughn was an all-Metro-Atlantic uh, athletic conference. It's uh, so all-MAC uh, MAAC, not the MAC uh, conference player. And just, just goes to show you that that jump from those, uh, those conferences, like the one that Tyree Appleby's trying to make, uh, and has made pretty well. It's not always easy. Vaughn is a guy that they pretty much have stopped playing um, because he just hasn't been able to to make that adjustment. Averaging a turnover uh, per every uh, six minutes right now. That's not it's not what you want from a grad transfer senior guard. And he's shooting zero uh, percent from downtown, despite the fact that he came in as a as a forty percent career three point shooter at Ryder. So uh, that's. Gives you a little bit of an idea of of what's going on there, Eric. They're just having some issues with their guards. And then Matt Morrell, who's a sharpshooter that I know we talked about on our SEC preview, he's only shooting 25% uh, from deep, playing almost 20 minutes a game. So he hasn't gotten it going out there yet either. Um, And all of that is making them a little bit easier to guard.
1: Yeah, that's – Again, I, I want to be <laughs> be hesitant because obviously, um, Kentucky's been a team that's been pretty easy to guard for most people. <laughs> and Florida really struggled against, but uh, but yeah, they, I, I don't really see which which Ole Miss player could 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 really really hurt them. Um, Ole Miss is always like I shouldn't say always, but like you see like yeah, R- Romello White, six eight, two thirty. I've always said his name wrong for so many years. I think is it Kadim C or Kadim Sai is how it, it looks. But it's it's Kadim um, Sai. Yeah, it is. Okay, so so I mean, you know, he's a really thin uh, he's he's bulked up a little bit, but but he looks pretty thin. But yeah, there's never been that like massive size on the inside. So um, for the Gators who have given up a lot of points on the interior recently, I think they've got to hope that they, um, you know, don't do that against against Ole Miss. Uh, But uh, but again, I look at I look at Ole Miss, who's been um, been a really, really solid Solid defensive team. Um, they'll mix in some zone that's been really, really effective for them. Kind of a two-three that'll that'll match up a little bit. Um, so uh, they and they've been really good in their in their zone, and they they go to it very. Uh, which I this is again this kind of goes back to our talking before. I'm a big fan of this where like um, they'll like they'll go to they'll go to a zone and then they'll have two or three good possessions, and then the other team calls a timeout presumably to figure out the zone, and then coming out of the timeout they'll just go to man like they'll be like, hey, I know you just spent that whole. Um, that whole timeout, trying to figure out how to get, attack our zone defense We're just going to go back to man Then they go back to man for a couple minutes and then they go back to the zone and then hope that whatever they forgot To, to drop against their their zone. Hopefully everyone forgot that so I, I, again I just I love that kind of in-game adjustments I love being able to switch between defenses and and Florida is probably gonna see a little bit of it because uh, uh, Yeah, that's what they've been doing so far
0: yeah, a guy that told me um, you know a guy that that I thought was was pretty good Um, And I talked to Ronnie Hamilton, one of their assistants, and he said, you know, yeah, you're absolutely right. He's got a little Keontae in him is uh, Luis Rodriguez, who's a a 6'6", 220 pound uh, sophomore, missed a lot of last season. He broke his foot. Um, And, you know, I think he's just an excellent, uh, tough defender. But the one thing that impresses me is the way that, you know, he can get in the paint. He can draw contact. And his his stat lines are impressive. He's you know, averaging nine a game and seven rebounds, but he's also averaging three assists and two steals and a block. Like, I mean, that's stuff in the stat sheet. Uh, I really think he's a player that's going to give Florida some problems
1: I remember a couple of years back it was like there's a couple of coaches that were like, oh, you know, we've got our kind of um guy in the Grant Williams kind of mold. And now i've this is, you know, uh, another instance where I've heard someone say that, Oh, uh, they you know they have someone that's got a little bit of Keontae Johnson in them. So say yeah. hey, that's when you that's when you know you've had kind of your impact on the league where people are like, oh, we need to get one of those you know six five six six physical versatile pieces. But uh, hey, I mean, there one player that just has not brought the. Um, the level of defensive quality I would have expected is, has been Anthony just given his length and, and athleticism. So uh, I feel like that'll be the matchup there and, and how Daruji can, can handle him. Um, that'll be one of the matchups because uh, he's had, he's had trouble kind of keeping his feet in front of some players and, and for a, a shorter physical guy with a lower center of gravity, though, that that's kind of been what Daruji had trouble with. So uh, that'll definitely be a player to watch
0: yeah he's had and he's had some nice games um especially of late you know 12 and 5 against Auburn 13 and 5 uh against uh Wichita so I mean he's he's been a guy that that they've been able to rely on recently the best shooter on the team uh when with with Shuler and Morrell missing shots this season at least it's been jerk out joiners another one of their transfers um I think he he comes from somewhere out west I don't know where um I had it written down and lost the piece of paper, so that was Cal, good. Cal
1: State Bakersfield.
0: There you go. All right. Okay. So Jerkel Joiner, he could shoot it a little bit, uh, but I do think Florida would benefit from sort of packing it in a little more and just making ten, uh, Tennessee. I don't know why I keep doing that. Making Ole Miss uh, make some jump shots, but it's a big one for the Gators. Ole Miss one and two in the league. Uh, obviously, Florida at two and two. Um, by no means you know, is all hope lost. uh, But certainly a big week for Florida with a chance to play uh, the Rebs at home and then travel to miss state who is off to kind of a surprising three and one start in the league. But I do think, you know, you gotta, you're Florida. You gotta take things one game at a time. What's one thing you hope to see for sure. uh, Tuesday night.
1: Uh, I, I think, do I hope to see, um, You know, my my mind first went to I hope that they can play defense at a much higher level, but I I kind of that that's coming coming off what they have done the last couple of games. I think it's maybe unrealistic to expect a big defensive jump in one game. But one thing I, I do think you can get a lot better on is is um offensively um especially just in what what sets do you call and, and how crisp can you get get through them so um one thing i really hope to see is is just florida playing a lot more connected and um with uh with kind of a more unified vision offensively
0: makes sense to me i think uh yeah i mean i just want to see is of going to continue to to rely on all this isolation because i'm not sure that that this is exactly the opponent to uh to do that too as well. And then the other one is, I, you know, we kind of teased it earlier, but the one thing you can't do against Ole Miss is let them route you on the offensive glass. They're very, very good offensive rebounded team. Florida's got to compete on the glass. That would be my, uh, if I have a Jimmy Dykes catchphrase for this game, which should make you all grimace, <laughs> uh, it would be compete on the glass because I think that's the, that's the recipe for an Ole Miss win.
1: Oh, it's, it's, it's true. And, and, and again, to me, I don't think that this team is lacked for, for effort or, or toughness. I, no. I just think you get, you get scrambled on defense. You get caught in some switches where it's Florida's smalls boxing out other teams, bigs. Um, so yeah, I think if Florida plays good first shot defense, they'll be able to rebound better. So I think if we see that, we look up at the, the score sheet and see uh, that Ole Miss has been kept off the offensive glass, largely um, it's going to be, it's going to be because Florida has played, you know, good first shot defense.
0: There it is. There's your preview of Ole Miss. Uh, a long show, but I think uh, one that, that needed to occur. Hopefully Florida uh, gets things back in gear uh, with a victory Tuesday night. We'll be back uh, to talk about it for the weekend. Thanks, everybody.